You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we come now to uh, the second part of Hosea uh, chapter 2. Uh, last week, uh, we saw the first 13 verses. We really sat and, and meditated, as it will, upon our sins and upon the ways in which God views our sins. And so we come now to verse 14 through the end, where we see, uh, in many ways, the ways in which God views salvation, making chapter 2 this a wonderful turning point, as we've been seeing throughout Hosea, that it, it speaks of the coming judgment of sin, but the fact that the Lord does not cast off his people, but through that punishment, he brings restoration in life. So hear these words from Holy Scripture, starting at verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name, names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Well, in the first part of chapter 2, it does speak of the Lord coming in judgment upon Israel's sins, the northern tribe. It speaks of, of, of Israel as this woman who seeks to find other lovers, to leave the safety and the comfort of the one who actually provides her all of these blessings and to run after those who would ultimately not be able to provide for her. It's this strange setting when you, when you look at it and understand the ways in which the Lord provides and loves his people that they would then go after other idols and other gods and seek other ways in which to be happy and fulfilled. And certainly it's easy to look at that and, and think how dumb must they be to seek after those idols. But then as we continue to look through Hosea, certainly it shines and reflects upon us the ways in which we trust, not in the Lord, but in our own endeavors, in our own economic prosperity, in the peace that we have. We trust in all of these things instead of in the Lord. Because the moment they're taken away, we can see the ways in which we have not fully trusted 
the Lord. And so it speaks of the Lord acting in order to restrain his people from their sins. And that through punishment, he will save them. But throughout it all, we just see this picture of people who do not deserve the mercy that they're given. They do not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And again, it is a picture of us. It is easy to think that, well, we're good people. We do good things. We go to church. But then to see that we do not deserve the mercy that our Lord has bestowed upon us. And here, we're just given this picture, not of God as loving, but as as God viewed through the lens of a husband who is cherishing a wife who doesn't deserve an ounce of his love. As we look through this, uh, this evening, we'll see the ways in which the Lord, Yahweh, that he promises in the first two verses, 14 and 15, to restore Israel. And then he promises in verses 16 through 20 to bring righteousness to his bride. Right? The very problem that exists is that God is holy and his people are not. And then finally, in verses 21 through 23, there's this promise of a universal restoration, this chain reaction that the Lord puts into motion as it trickles down from the throne of heaven to the earth below, bringing blessing and restoration. It's really an all-encompassing part of this uh, chapter. And again, a, a reminder that there are still many more verses, many more chapters to go in the book of Hosea. But Hosea wants us to see judgment wants us to see our sin, but always wants it to be kept in light in that tension of the fact that God is merciful to us. So in verses 14 and 15, we have this promise of the Lord. And you'll note the way it starts, therefore, or because of this, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is actually the third time in chapter 2 that the word therefore has been used. In every instance, the, the two other instances, it was because of their sin, therefore I will punish them. And here now, he, he, the prophet says, therefore, and the people would be expecting to hear more judgment. And instead, they hear this tenderness from the Lord. I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The Hebrew there is actually, uh, I will speak to her heart. I will speak tenderly to her. It's this picture of God going forth to this person, to his bride who doesn't deserve his love. And showing forth even more love to her. Speaking to her and then drawing her back to himself. It's God here who is shown as loving to a spurned spouse. I think this is really Hosea's contribution really to the doctrine of God because when we think about God as love, as 1 John says, or we think about John 3.16, which speaks of for God so loving the world. Here in verse 14, we, we see God acting out that love in a tender and loving way in a caring, kind, compassionate way. Again, as as Hosea wanted us to feel what God feels with our sin, so here we should feel what God feels in his love towards us. 
That God here has spoken as somebody who has come down to rescue and redeem and to speak loving, kind words to someone who does not deserve them. And in verse 15, he then speaks of the ways in which he is bringing her, as it were, through another exile. Bringing her out of Egypt. Bringing her out of Egypt and back into the promised land. The judgment that's being spoken of here in most of the prophets is the the threatening of exile, of them being reduced and everything stripped from them. And here the Lord speaks of a time in which he will bring them back, giving them vineyards once again. And I think the idea is simply the idea of celebration, right? In the Lord's Supper, we use wine because wine is used as an item of of celebration. The vineyard produces grapes, and you use this in festivals and feasts. And so here the Lord is saying, not only will I, I speak tenderly and lovingly to her heart, but then I will restore to her these things of celebration, so that she may celebrate and rejoice in this renewed relationship. And another way in which Hosea seems to use turns of phrases, he says, uh, the Lord will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Achor means trouble, but it was actually the, the valley outside of Jericho. So when the people were coming in to take over the land... You may remember that there, uh, at the city there was um, Achan who had... St- basically stolen some of the goods that were supposed to be dedicated to destruction. And he and his whole family were actually destroyed in that instance for their disobedience to the Lord. And so the Valley of Achor, it stood as as this reminder of judgment to the Israelites. But here now, the the Valley of Achor will become a door of hope. The, The Valley of Trouble will be a place of hope as God leads his people back into the promised land. And so this is speaking really of a new return, of a return from exile, of the Lord restoring and bringing his people back. So even though he's threatening judgment immediately to them, he's also speaking about the ways in which he will bring them back. And there in the wilderness, there's this remarriage, as it were. So in the wilderness where he's speaking tenderly to her, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. It's as if God is, is reproposing to his bride who has abandoned him. And she answers him as she did in the days of her youth. And Hosea brings up the time in which they came out of Egypt. And you know the history of Israel, that this was a time when still Israel, even in the midst of all of these mighty miracles that the Lord is doing, still doubted his love and care and ability to care for them. Yet, I think it was interesting that though they were wayward people, they never turned back. They never turned back from the Lord. And so even there, I think the wilderness generation is probably standing as indictment to the people in Hosea's time who have just completely abandoned Yahweh. And then verses 16 through 20. God is is beginning to to remedy the problem of his bride's unrighteousness. And so he promises to bring righteousness to his bride in verses 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. 
In the Minor Prophets, this day that is coming is often spoken of as the day of the Lord, and the the Minor Prophets um, oscillate between the day of the Lord as a day of vengeance, but also the day of the Lord as a day of restoration. And again, we see that in Hosea, this idea of judgment, but of mercy. And here, he's speaking of a coming day in which the people who had abandoned him would return calling him my husband. And again, there's another play on words here because the word Baal actually can also mean, besides the the deity, it can also mean Lord, Master, or Husband. And here, uh, Hosea actually uses two different words. And so instead of using the word Baal for husband, he uses the word man for husband in the Hebrew. And so he's speaking here, and you see this in verse 17, that there's this time coming Well, the Lord will really erase Baal's name from history. It's as if even from their own vocabulary, the word would never be used again in order that they may not sin. And as we've seen through Hosea, there, there seems to be this impending problem that the people who are supposed to be God's people were abandoning the worship of him. And it looks as if from the outside that the, the worship of Yahweh could be forgotten from the world stage. That the people would so abandon and leave him as, as if he were this local tribal deity. That Yahweh's name would be lost to the pages of history. But God speaks of this reversal that no, the Baals that they worship, those I will remove from their mouth and they shall be remembered no more. This, this idea of absolute removal that Hosea keeps constantly hammering home the idea that sin is nothing to be toying around with. That sin and idolatry, it is not something that you can keep as a, as a cute pet In many ways, I think what Hosea is saying is that this sin and idolatry, yes, it may look like a cute kitten, but it's really a tiger, and one day it will grow up and destroy you. And so God, to protect his people, will eradicate Baal's name. It's as if his existence will be completely obliterated, as if he was never invented to begin with. And it's this idea that is picked up in later passages in the Bible. Jesus speaking about sin and the need to flee from sin to the ways in which of even plucking out your own eye or cutting off your own hand. Or the book of Hebrews speaking of resisting to the point of shedding of blood. God is just not toying around with the sin of his people. God here speaks of obliteration for Baal. But here he continues, not only is he going to remove these sinful uh, uh, idolatry that they're so prone to be involved in, but then positively he's going to make a covenant on that day with all of creation. That this, this covenant that will be made, it seems to be this covenant of peace that is spoken elsewhere in the prophets. Because you'll see the ways in which the, the, the world looks as if it's going to be restored completely. That the animal kingdom will no longer have and be at war with humans. And that humans will no longer be at war with one another. That the Lord will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land so that the people, his people, can lie down in safety. And so this wonderful covenant promise 
And again, as we've seen through Hosea, Hosea has spoken of our sin, not just as our sin or our sin as corporate sin, but as our sin that it actually pollutes the very ground that we walk on. And so here the Lord is reversing that. That God is restoring not just the people and their relationship, but the entire world. This this promise of restoration is really going bigger, going cosmic. Something we'll see at the end of chapter 2 here. And again, the picture is that God is not giving them what they deserve. And if you're here as a believer... You can testify to the fact that God has not given you what you deserve. But not only is he not not giving them what they deserve, but he is lavishing grace and mercy upon them. And again, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. The Lord overflowed for me with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Overflowed. He is abundant in mercy. And then we see this marriage, this remarriage proposal in righteousness in verses 19 through 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me, be, I will betroth you to me forever. Uh, again, earlier on, we saw that Israel had so abandoned God as if to basically she has executed a divorce from her God. And here God has not only speaking tenderly to her, restoring her, but also brings her and is remarried to her forever that the Lord has made this promise and it will come true. But also at the second half of verse 19, he's speaking of the ways in which he's needing to change his bride so that she will no longer do these things ever again. It's almost as if in, in the ancient Near East, you would, the, the, the suitor, the husband, would bring a, a bride price to the uh, woman's father in order to secure her hand in marriage. Here, it's almost as if it's pictured that the Lord is then providing all of these gifts and lavishing them upon his wife in order to secure her marriage. But it goes beyond just material goods to this internal change of righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy that will now characterize his bride. Previously, and we'll see before this and after this, that they were unrighteous, they were unjust, abandoning God, and they were not, they had no mercy. And so God brings her back in order to repropose. But there's a, a huge difference this time. Again, there's a permanent bond. She will be internally changed. And she will then be faithful. And then it ends in, in verse 20. And you shall know the Lord. Now, the word to know in Hebrew uh, carries something much more intimate in knowledge than just the, the, the recognition that somebody else exists. It speaks of Adam and Eve, that Adam knew his wife, and he knew her in this deep and intimate relationship. It wasn't just a bare knowledge that, yes, Eve exists. But here it speaks of Israel now knowing God in this deep and intimate way. And really what Hosea is speaking of, though he doesn't have the words yet or understand fully, but he's, he's really getting at this idea of union with Christ that becomes so prominent in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament speaks of all of us who believe in Jesus Christ of being united and brought into his body. It also refers to us as his bride. And so Hosea is promising that though judgment is coming, there is a time 
coming afterwards when a new exodus will happen, when God's people will be totally transformed from the inside out and so united to God in an indissoluble marriage bond. And then that further leads to Yahweh's promise of universal restoration in verses 21 through 23. And just as Israel had answered Yahweh in the wilderness, now God answers creation. So God answers at the first part of verse 19, then creation answers God in in terms of the way in which it produces and does what he commands. And then this section ends with God's people answering God. So God answers, God answers the heavens and he sets in motion this rather grand chain reaction. This day of Yahweh speaks of this day of restoration that is coming. So God seems to be proclaiming from his throne room to the heavens around him. And the heavens then send forth rain to the earth and the earth then responds by producing grain, wine, and oil again. And they shall answer Jezreel, which again was one of the names of the three children born to Hosea. And it means God will sow. It was used earlier of a valley of Jezreel, which was full of bloodshed. That would be a place of judgment for Israel. But again, here now, Jezreel is used for the way in which God is sowing forth. He's bringing forth a new creation. But then as Hosea seems to do in in verse 23, he he changes the metaphor in midstream. I will sow her for myself in the land. And suddenly now God is pictured as uh, this as the one who is, is, is plowing up the land and planting his people like bulbs before spring that they would then blossom and grow forth and, and multiply across the land. So I will sow her for myself in the land. And God is pictured here as fulfilling the Abrahamic promise that Israel would be like the sands of the sea, the stars in the sky. Here God is growing his people. And finally, he speaks again to his people that he will have mercy, which is clearly what this part of chapter 2 is all about, upon no mercy. That I will say to not my people, you are my people. And what's lovely to see at the very end is that then it's pictured as this child who was called not my people responds and turns and says, you are my God. You are my God. In the midst of this, of this, uh, of Israel abandoning the Lord, here they're shown as being changed and, and brought in, and they turn and respond by calling God theirs. He is mine. And again, I think chapter two is is it's meant to make us feel first to think of God as a husband pursuing a wayward wife who is wooing her and showering her in love. And it's not because she's beautiful or worthy. It's simply because she is his. And think about that. You who are gathered here this evening, you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, Hosea really is is highlighting or bringing out for us that you now belong to God, not because you loved him first, but because he first loved you. 
He pursued you. He wooed you. He called you. He saved you. He transformed you because he loved you. And do you know this? Because this is what we need to hear. What Hosea is showing forth this idea of the way in which God loves, the way in which God views salvation. He's really weaving together almost a story that is speaking about the doctrines of grace. Because here we see in this text, we see Israel pictured as somebody who is completely and totally depraved, corrupted to her core, born in sin, who actually commits these sins. That God's people, the Israelites, are not exempt from this. We're to picture and see on display the life of Gomer, who is an adulteress. But also we see God's unconditional election. That God saves Israel, not through any merit of her own, but merely because he decided to save her but also irresistible grace and the way in which the Lord woos his bride, woos his people and redeems her and brings her back and makes her righteous. Because again, the picture is one of Israel who is hell-bent on running the other way to other lovers. And she would have been perfectly happy to do so. And yet it is God who irresistibly brings her back to himself. And then this wonderful idea of perseverance of the saints. Think about the ways in which God here is pictured as proposing. He betrothes her to himself forever. Forever. Those who truly trust in God, those who are truly united to him. Uh, Paul speaks of the way in which what God starts in your life, he'll bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Hosea wants us to feel our sin. But he doesn't leave us here. He wants to see the work of God in our life. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to repent. He wants us to come to God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. So that we, like this child who was previously called not my people, would be able to respond that we are your people, O Lord, and you are my God. And through Jesus Christ, we have the blessing, the ability to say those words, that you are my God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us though we didn't love you, that you're at work in us though we still sin and chase after other idols. Now, Father, you are at work in us to complete us and make us perfect and holy one day. So, Father, give us hope, give us trust in your love for us, that is stronger than anything. Lord, we thank you for your love this evening. Bless us, we pray. Amen. Well, our closing song before we come to the Lord's Supper is His Mercy is More. remember no wrongs we have done omniscient all knowing he counts not their sum 
thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. He stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Well, we come now to the Lord's table, to the Lord's Supper. And after singing that, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. That is what this table is supposed to symbolize to us. It's supposed to symbolize Jesus Christ who was broken, who bled, who died, who descended into hell on behalf of us in order that we might have life everlasting. And so as we come to this table, it's for Christians. It's for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This table is so that they may be renewed in their walk with the Lord. And so as we look at this table, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, come to it to feed upon Christ, to be renewed once more as if a, a renewal of a wedding ceremony. A renewal of vows Uh, for children uh, who are not yet communicant members. uh, We do pray and long for the day when you will be taking this supper with us. And finally, uh, if you are not a believer, uh, this table is not for you. Uh, Paul warns that this is a a meal in which uh, is only to be taken by Christians. But if you are not a believer today... 
The Lord would would say, look at this table, look at the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that are offered and to come and to repent so that you may take this soon, knowing that there is a yet greater meal left to be taken, the wedding supper of the Lamb that we who are believers will all partake in. So hear these words of institution. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, knowing that this is a promise that he is coming again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we come to this table that though we are sinners, your mercy is more. We do pray that these simple elements of bread and wine would be used by you to spiritually nourish and feed us that we would grow in our trust and our understanding of the gospel, that you would be blessing us through this meal, taken together as a family in the Lord Jesus Christ, as his great bride. So, Father, now we pray. Be with us. Strengthen us, we ask in the Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more. Thank you.